So this is part two of Graham's Flying Adventures in the US because I couldn't think of any better thing to call it. So I hope you enjoyed me chatting about the uh, first part of my flying experiences, primarily in the US, so I did have a lot of fun in the UK as well. I met some really interesting and crazy people. Uh, so I, I'd sort of shared flying to a remote airfield and um, nearly having a head on with somebody else if I hadn't just been lucky and caught the glint of the sun shining off this guy's... Um, I guess part of the glass on the aircraft or something. Anyway, something reflected enough to make me just hang back and just see what was going on. And probably the most embarrassing cross-country I had uh, was um, going across, oh, I can't remember the name of the airport now. There were a couple of instances at airports because where we were flying out of, Newport News Airport, I don't know what the official name is, but they were flying commercial jets in, so the smaller airliners. Uh, but this other one was also a big um, airport from my perspective, and it had commercial flights going in. And what you get, in the UK it's called Poolies, or it used to be called Poolies, and it's a little book, and it has diagrams of every airport and airfield in the UK, so you know how many runways you've got, which, which direction they're going, because that's important. Uh, because And you've probably seen the, the two digits on the, uh, the runway. They're the, 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 the um, angular direction of the runways, so... A runway that's um, at sort of 280 degrees. If you go from zero right the way around to 280 degrees, that would be runway 28. So that's what that comes from. So that's what those. Now, if you ever wonder what those numbers were on a runway, and um, as a pilot, it's good to know what you're facing because if you've got different runways, certainly they'll be tend to be using one runway or another so that you're taking off and landing into the wind. So I mentioned that last time that that helps to shorten both your takeoff run and your landing run so um this and in the us i can't now quite remember how we did it but we i didn't have a pulleys book but i did have a chart of this particular airfield and it had three runways so that meant that i would need to uh, not only get clearance to land and get in the pattern or do whatever but know which runway i was aiming for so um i anyway i did my long cross country and that was all good and then when you're 10 miles out uh, roughly 10 miles from your destination, you um, radio, you have the frequency for the air traffic control for that airport, and you identify yourself, and uh, they can then see you and uh, know who you are, and they'll tell you what to do. So quite often, what they'll do, they'll put you in, into what they call the pattern, <clears throat> and that's where everybody flies in um, uh, either a clockwise or anti-clockwise direction, and then you once you're in that pattern, you're well spaced out, and then you you basically come down and land in in turn, so that there's enough space for people to land, clear the runway, and then the next person behind comes in. So <clears throat> the runways I was using were not particularly busy, and it was normal to just be told to do um to come straight in basically, and you do a long final where you don't bother with the pattern, you'll just point yourself at the runway, and off you go. So, um, as I say, I was expecting to see three run runways, and they'd given me um, the number. So I was looking at my compass heading, trying to just get myself aligned so that I was on the right heading. So I just basically go straight onto this runway. And as I got in closer, there were two. There was an extra runway, um, which I said so there was a runway there I hadn't expected. It was very close in terms of its angle to the one I'd been told to land on, and possibly through an experience, I can't remember now, it was a long time ago, but I, I I was trying to work out which was which and I couldn't quite figure it out. So I basically took a punt on one. And as I was coming in, I could see these big X's across it. 
So a big X on the runway means you don't use it. You don't land on that runway. It's not in use. So by then I was so close that I couldn't switch to the other runway. So um, I had to radio and, and say, I'm, I'm on the wrong alignment. I'm going to, I'm going to have to abandon the runway and this way I could get into the pattern. So I then got myself basically uh, got high flew across so that I could get into this pattern and then and then kind of did a loop round and landed. So that was embarrassing enough. <clears throat> and then once I'd landed, they told me to get off at a particular taxiway, given that there were other aircraft coming in behind me, and I couldn't quite see which taxiway they meant. So I thought, well, I'll take this first one because I wouldn't want to go past it. And, of course, as soon as I turned off, I realised I'd got the wrong one. <laughs> so I then had to radio in and say, OK, I'm now in the wrong place so that meant I had to go back out onto the runway because they didn't have these big taxiways that you see in uh, these big international airports that I imagine most of you are familiar with uh, this this was a small regional airport it had the runway and that was primarily what you did you went up and down on the runway so I had to then wait for a gap and then get clearance to buzz along the runway and then go off where I was supposed to go and when I got down there there was actually somebody, somebody standing at this taxiway to make sure I didn't mess it up again so uh, yeah that was kind of embarrassing um, another remote one was uh, uh, it was another small field it was all good and um, what what we were doing the small fields we taxi in the aircraft but with a, a small apron you haven't got or a small area you haven't always got the room to completely turn the aeroplane around while you're, um, I mean, you could sort of hold one hard, one foot hard down on the brake and just throttle it to get it to really turn on the other, to sort of pivot on the other one. But we were, and we kind of would do that a little bit, but you still had to back it up. So we'd just get out and push the aircraft back into the right spot. And I remember at this particular airfield, this dog came running over and it had, it had three legs. So one, one of the front legs was missing and it would keep jumping up at me. And I just knocked the leg down because I really didn't want it jumping up while I was trying to push my aeroplane. But um, anyway, so strange things you uh, uh, you get when you're um, flying. So I spoke before about um, taking photographs. And one of the places that I did take a lot of photographs was, and it wasn't in a Cessna, it was in a, a Piper Arrow, which... Um, so that's a slightly bigger aircraft. The Cessna 150s, 152s are basically two-seaters. You sit side by side in the front. The 172 is bigger. That has, um, I think it's four seats. So there's a row of seats behind. And then they do variations of it. And sometimes 172s or Skyvans, uh, the sort of variations of that design, the design are used for... Um, um, parachute jumps and that kind of stuff so they're, they're getting a little bit bigger so I was tending to fly the small ones and what we decided to do one day I, I was staying with two English guys we were sharing this apartment in um, near, near the airport we just get a one of them would have a car or we'd sort of bum a lift from somebody to get get there in the morning or get back in the evening whatever we were doing because you don't walk in the US obviously and um, because we couldn't do any solo flying and we're all learning we're all um you know trainees we couldn't do any really do much flying one of them had the idea of us all chipping in together and hiring this piper arrow which is a bigger aircraft it's a very comfortable four-seater low wing a retractable undercarriage variable pitch propeller which was fun um so definitely a level of sophistication you know more 
than we were used to flying with the uh, the little Cessnas. And it had um, an autopilot on it as well. So that was that was really cool, actually. Uh, I was flying for the first leg, and we flew down to uh, a place called Kitty Hawk, which is where the Wright brothers flew and is apparently the first manned flight of a, a powered aircraft. I have seen... <laughs> Uh, not to offend any American people, but I've certainly seen some stuff that put some question marks over whether or not the Wright brothers actually flew the distance they claimed at the, on the first attempt, on the attempt where there was nobody there, and that was the one where they said they did it because they were unable to replicate it for some time. And um, even pictures taken at the time, sort of people have looked at them and said, yeah, the aircraft looks to be in the wrong spot if they actually did what they said they did. So I've got my doubts about the Wright brothers, and certainly given the way they carried on afterwards by trying to patent everything to do with aircraft design, even if it wasn't their own, because the way they steered their aircraft was a thing called wing warping, so it actually physically twisted the wing. It, they didn't use ailerons. Ailerons were in, invented, I think, by Curtis, the guy who, uh, another American, um, another pioneer, um, but that's a, so that's a small section in the wing that goes up and down, and you have them on one on each side of the wing usually, and they op they move in opposite directions, and that then turns the aircraft. But the um, the Orville, the Wright brother design didn't do that at all. It was completely different. Um, and um, the only reason that, that they were stopped from patenting everything was when the First World War came along. The American government decided there were going to be no patents on um, aircraft design because they wanted to get aircraft that could be used in in the war and they wanted them fast so and curtis had actually offered to work with the wright brothers and they'd um i can't remember which one of it was but he seems to have been quite a opportunistic and in my opinion a nasty piece of work so there you go anyway that's enough about the wright brothers but we did fly down there and it was quite fun to fly into the place where supposedly the first um this this first man flight over whatever the distance was supposed to be took place and Flying the um, Piper was really cool as well because as soon as it was up, I wanted the undercarriage up. I'm one of those um, pilots, I guess. I, I, I don't like the wheels sticking out. <laughs> I like it to be a flying machine, not a you know something that you wheel. So um, we get the you know I, my idea was to get the wheels up as fast as possible and then um, set up the uh, the autopilot and then we kind of flew down there but I didn't notice that also the autopilot wasn't working because I had also my visual landmarks in mind and uh, as we were flying down I could see we were drifting off so uh, I kind of readjusted the autopilot but there was I think there was something wrong with it anyway in the, in the end I abandoned it and we flew down and then um, the other guys flew back so that that was really fun though that was fun being in a, a nice aircraft uh, very comfortable aircraft, <laughs> not um, the really, sort of really small, <clears throat> noisy ones. This was really nice. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm just going to have a drink. <clears throat> okay, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so that was going down to um, Kitty Hawk. But what we did do, we went off to this place where I had oysters for the first time. Kill Devil's Hill, I think it was, from memory. So uh, if you know that area, these might mean something to you. So that was my experience of flying the Piper Arrow. Now, another experience that I had with um, flying at the, the busy airports was actually coming back to my home airport, Newport News. Now, one of the things that got absolutely hammered into us was that on no, for absolutely no reason did you make, did you force one of the commercial airliners to do a go-around. Now, a go-around 
is where you abandon a landing and you basically put the throttle back in, you, you know, you, you go faster, you climb, then you turn round and you basically go all the way back round again and have another go at the landing. So that was absolutely gospel for us. We were, there was on, yeah, absolutely no occasion where we were allowed to force a commercial airliner to do a go round. So, um, anyway, on this particular occasion, I've been doing, um, a cross country flight. I was radioing in at the 10 mile mark to, um, let the guys know I was coming in and I could hear other traffic about on the radio because you're listening all the time because you can hear other people calling on the same frequency so you know who they are, where they're going, what kind of aircraft they are. And I knew I had, um, I think it's um, a DC-10 McDonnell Douglas, so it's sort of one of the, it's sort of a medium-sized airliner and um, I knew they were some distance behind me but I was expecting to be go, to be told to go into the pattern because I'm in my tiny little Cessna and um, th these guys are going much faster than me, you know, big jet airliner. So I was quite surprised <laughs> when I was told to go come straight in because I was basically put on the long final. So I had my approach all sorted out because I'd flown, you know, by then landed quite a few times at that, that particular airport, so I knew what I was doing. But all the time I can hear this other one getting closer and closer, just listening to the radio calls. And then as I was just about to come in and uh, getting close to the threshold to actually come down and land, I could hear the controller saying to this um, McDonnell Douglas that you may have to do a go around. And I thought, oh, no, you know, it's absolutely not. So I just got the thing down as soon as I could. I was still going quite fast for, for what I was supposed to be doing. And I just went hammering up the runway <laughs> on the ground and got to the taxiway and pretty much had one foot on the brake because you turn an aircraft on the ground by using the brakes. You've got individual brakes on the left and right wheel on the in this sort of tricycle undercarriage that I um, or the, the small wheel at the front, the nose wheel, and then the the two uh, main wheels under the wings. That arrangement, that triangular arrangement, you land on your back wheel, so you land with your nose up. On the back wheels and then drop the nose wheel down uh, when you're when you're sort of slow enough you just pop it down so the way you steer is that there are individual brakes or brakes on these two rear wheels that you can work independently so to turn left you just apply the brake on the um uh, the left wheel and you go to the left so um anyway i'm belting down the runway uh, going quite fast and my taxiway's coming up I know this jet is just coming in behind me. I mean, he's pretty much over the threshold at that point. So I pretty much stood on the brake and pretty much went round on two wheels and then got to got to my um, checkpoint. So you, when you come off the runway, there's actually a line where you have to stop. And what you normally do, just some basic checks on the aircraft, and you, you um, then talk to the ground controllers and get permission to um, go off to wherever you're going. So in the case of the airline, it would be go off to a terminal. And in my case, it was go off to a thing called the apron, which is where we would park our little, little airplanes. So um, I was stopped there and I, I was on the radio to, to the ground and just doing my checks. And uh, this aircraft came up behind me. It must have been pretty much nose over my little aircraft. I thought, well, you're down. You can wait a few seconds while I just get sorted out and off. And then off I went and uh, he went off to the terminal. But um, I, yeah, I was quite pleased that these guys didn't have to do that, didn't have to do a go around. It was a source of pride. 
uh, we did always have an invitation to go to the control room and I, I left it almost at the very end because there were only three of us English people flying so they always knew who it was coming in and quite often I'd come down a bit hard or whatever or the, the uh, landings wouldn't be terribly elegant so um, I did leave it till almost the end before I went up to the tower and I waited till I'd had a good landing and uh, that was that was nice going up there. The only other thing um, that was fun about Newport News or the only other thing but another thing that was fun about it was that there was a NASA, a NASA airfield down the road somewhere. I don't know where. It was just nearby. And NASA used these little jets. I think, that, I don't know, they're T-34s or 38s. I don't know, whatever they are. But um, they used them to basically fly around. But they're cool-looking jets. And the time I was at Newport News, they were doing something to the runway down at this, this field that the NASA guys used. So they would park the aeroplanes where we were. And um, they were really cool to walk past in the morning. And that we also had some A-10, they call them tank busters. They're quite big aircraft, got this huge, this huge cannon coming out of the front of the, the nose. And then the, the jet engines are high up on the back. And these are really scary looking things. So we'd walk past those. And um, yeah, the routine in the morning was basically we'd sort out a flight plan. I would generally get to the airfield at about seven, uh, fire my flight. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'll have a quick drink again find my flight plan for the morning because I'd be back by lunchtime and then do a bit more work and then fly in the afternoon and then go down to the aeroplane and in the morning it used to be quite frosty so I'd have to put de-icer on the the aircraft on the wings and because the Cessna has a high wing I used to have to <laughs> climb up and the uh, the engine cowling you could stand on these things but they were like just very very simple hand grips they weren't designed to be stood on but because I was a bit short slam uh, I used to climb up there and stand with one foot on this hand grip thing and be holding the de-icer in my other so one so one foot on that thing the other leg out in the air to keep some balance I'd be holding the de-icer spray thing so it's like a fire extinguisher it looked a bit like a fire extinguisher so how, holding the big bottle part in one hand and holding up the nozzle with the other and spraying it over the the wing now I'm pretty sure <laughs> I was probably breaking all sorts of health and safety rules there because really I should have had a, a ladder or something. But anyway, uh, it is what it is, and that was what I used to do. But it got me going, <clears throat> and um, that'd be one of my things. And then I do remember on one afternoon, my instructor—I was doing a getting ready for a solo, and I'd seen my instructor with another student getting out onto the apron where the aircraft were. And what we would do, we'd run the engines up on the apron first of all, and, th and then just. Um, just try sort of full throttling at one point. We would actually have tried these things called magnetos, but there were two of them. So you'd turn them off and you'd rev up and then turn the other one off and on, whatever you do and rev up. I remember doing that and I got distracted seeing my uh, instruction. I forgot to put my feet on the brakes to hold the aircraft in place. And as I pushed the throttle up, the aircraft lurched forward. So I mean, my, foot was, my feet were straight on the brake. But um, yeah, I was really embarrassed that he might have seen me doing that. So um Anyway, they're my stories, so I hope you found them entertaining. I don't know if you uh, ever think about doing flying or would like to try flying. If you do, I, I do recommend it. It's, a, it's an amazing way to see the place. You see some fantastic people. I could talk more about some of the um, brilliant people I met in Leavesden when I was flying there and got some great stories from that too. But um, I will not say any more on this particular podcast. So um, as I say, I hope you've enjoyed it, and I will speak to you again on another occasion. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. 
Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now.